Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. Today we pick back up in our study through the Gospel of Mark called The Way of Jesus. We trust that you will receive just what you need from the Lord today. Thank you for joining us. Well, good morning, everybody. It's always interesting to stand up here. For some reason, this must be the better side of my face. Is that why you're packed on this side and (laughs) empty over here? I don't know. When we first moved to Springfield over 20 years ago now, we bought this tiny little house, and in the backyard, it was just a complete disaster, just a mess. We got a great deal on it. But there was particularly this one tree that was just so ugly, and it needed to come down, and I wasn't, like, looking forward to that. I mean, I'm thinking, this is going to take an entire Saturday of my life to go bring my axe out there and chop down this tree, so I finally muster up the the willingness to do this. I take my ax, I go out to this tree. I'm like, this is going to be all day. I take my first swing at this tree and it explodes. It just explodes. It looked like a living, thriving tree, but inside it was completely dead. It didn't take me more than five minutes. Now today, as we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark together, a series we call Uh, the way of Jesus, if you're following on your notes with me, Jesus confronts those who, like that tree, look good externally, but are dead inside. They might look good externally, but they're dead inside. So if you have a Bible with you today, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. You're more than welcome to join me in that. If you don't own a Bible, don't have a Bible, we have some available in the seat underneath you there. would love for you to grab one of those. Take it home with you. If you don't have a Bible, we want you to have that as our gift to you. And you can find that on page 823 of those black Bibles. We'll also have it up on the screen. Now, before we look at this, I just want to mention, we've talked about this before, in the Gospel of Mark. Mark, he likes to use, the author Mark likes to use these things called sandwiches, where he'll have like a piece of bread up front, and then the main part of the story is in the middle, and then he sort of concludes it with another piece of bread at the end. And that's what we've got again together today. And honestly, I could probably teach six messages just on this passage. You'll probably see why as we begin to develop it. But I'm really going to focus today on what I think is the main idea of this passage. And the main idea, in my opinion, is what's going to result in our lives when we have true faith in God? What are the kind of things we can expect when we have that kind of faith? So let's pick this story up, starting in verse 12 there. It says, the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And I just love that, right? Another reminder, Jesus is fully human, experienced the same things we experience. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. What the heck is going on here, huh? This does not sound like the Jesus we've been learning about in the, in the past year and a half in Mark's gospel. But we need to unpack this a little bit to understand what's happening. Are you ready for an agricultural lesson this morning? Let me try that again. I mean, this is exciting. Are you ready for an agricultural lesson about figs? Yes, figs. The season for figs to be harvested was in mid-August to mid-October in Israel. After the harvest, of course, like most trees, the tree would kind of die. But then starting in December-ish, it would start to grow these little buds. And these buds would begin to grow. And the Hebrew word for these buds are pagim. After these pagim grow and grow and grow, then the tree begins to grow leaves around late April. So key thing here is this buds on this tree and then the leaves grow. In fact, I'm going to show you a picture of a 
fig, you see the red fig, and then the pegim are the green things you see there. And here's the key. The Israelites, the Jewish people, would eat those pegim. Those were something that were edible. They might be a little more tart than a normal fig, but they would expect to eat those kinds of fruits when they had developed. So once a tree was in leaf, if you saw a fig tree and it had leaves on it, you would expect there would be plenty of pegim for you to go and eat there. And this is implied in verse 13, where Jesus sees this tree full of leaves. And he walks over there because he's hungry, because he's going to take one of these pegim. But this tree turns out to be deceptive. It is full of leaves, but there are no pegim hanging on this tree. And so here's a better way for us to think of verse 13, which sounds so harsh to us. It might say something like, it was, of course, not the season for figs, but it was the season for pegim. So he was expecting there might be something to eat on this tree. Agricultural lesson done, right? But Jesus is not done. And he is going to use this fig tree as a lesson, an object lesson for his disciples and us still for today. You see, in the Old Testament, if you're on your notes again, the fig tree was a symbol of Israel and of their disobedience. There are numerous examples of this in the Old Testament, but let's look at one example from Jeremiah 8, 13. I think this is probably what Jesus had in mind with what is going on here. He write, The Lord writes, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. The fact that this fig tree is full of leaves but has no fruit portrays exactly what Jesus is seeing going on in Jerusalem, particularly in the temple of Jerusalem and the religious leaders who were overseeing the operations of the temple. They were giving this outward appearance of beauty and magnificent, but inside of the temple, there was nothing there. It was all show with no real fruit. And so Jesus is about to go to the temple with his disciples, and this fig tree sort of sets him up for this situation. Now, before we get to that, though, I just want to say, even though this fig tree was meant to be a a symbol for Israel, it's still pretty good for us today as the church, especially what I would say in the Western church. You see, God doesn't really care that much about big buildings and big crowds. What really matters to Jesus is what's taking place in the roots of our lives. It's not about a big show. It's about what's happening in the hearts of his people. Like the tree in my backyard, you may look good. We may look good on the outside. And there's plenty of churches that do, but all Jesus cares about is what's happening on the inside here. Are we truly bearing fruit for his glory? Charles Spurgeon, I I love this quote. He's one of the most famous preachers of all time, wrote this. The great majority of persons who have any sort of religion at all bear leaves, but they produce no fruit. And the idea here is pretty simple. If you're following on your notes, Jesus doesn't want hollow religion. He wants faith that bears fruit. We're going to come back to this later, but let's get to the meat of this story, starting in verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Now read verse 17 on your notes with me there out loud. It says, and as he taught them, he said, 
Is it not written, my house will be a call, house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Let's finish the meat here. Verse 18, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Now, Jesus enters the temple. The temple, of course, doesn't exist anymore today, so we can't probably imagine what it might have looked like, but they've actually built some uh, models of this, and there's one in Jerusalem. It's a pretty big model, and I have a picture of it here for us to kind of just think about what the temple might look like. Now, as you're looking at that, you see the main big courts there? That is the courts of the Gentiles. Who are Gentiles? That's us. Right? And that is as far as we could go. And then as you get in and in, you know, they'd have a court for the, for the women. And then they have the place where only the priests could go. And in the very center, there is what is called the Holy of Holies. That is where God's presence was said to dwell. And only one person could enter that place one time a year to offer a sacrifice of atonement. Now, to understand what Jesus is seeing here. What's going on here? We got to understand a little bit of background on the temple. If you're following on your notes, the temple was where all could meet with and worship God. Even the Gentiles. They were invited to come and worship the Lord at the temple. And so what is Jesus seeing here? He's seeing this court of Gentiles being overrun by people selling stuff by corruption, by whatever. You see, three times a year, every Jewish male was required to come to Jerusalem and offer a sacrifice. Gentiles would come as well, and they would bring their sacrifice. It had to be a perfect sacrifice, or more likely, if you were traveling from a great distance, you would buy your sacrifice at the temple. Now, you get to the temple, let's say you're a Gentile or a Jewish person, and you get into the court of Gentiles, and it is with people selling animals. Most specifically, if you were poor, you would have to buy two pigeons as your sacrifice. So you show up, here's the two pigeons you want to buy. Normally, they should cost you about 25 cents in our, in our currency today. But the people there decided to add an exorbitant price. $4 is what a poor person would be, end up requiring to pay. Listen, in that day, I know it doesn't sound like much today, but that was a ton of money for them. Instead of charging what these animals actually cost, they were charging way more. Now imagine also, on top of that, if you're a Gentile and you come, you've got your own currency from whatever country that you're from, so you bring your currency, and they require you to exchange that into Jewish currency. And they think, oh, this is another opportunity for us to take advantage of people. And they charge this exorbitant exchange rate. If you've ever had to do that, if you've visited another country, you know it's really annoying. Right? You're like, wow, that wasn't worth the same as the money I just gave you. And multiply that times 10 and what's going on here. This court of the Gentiles, in which Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, had invited Gentiles, us, to come and worship him and be with him, had turned into a marketplace. Just imagine you are coming and you want to worship the most high God and you just see vendors and crowds and noise and busyness and lines. Have you ever gone to an outdoor market like this? I'm not talking about the one downtown here. That's nice, right? 
I'm talking about when I got to go to Myanmar and visit one of our missionaries. Here, here is what this probably looked like. It is absolute chaos. Now let's remember, what is the purpose of the temple? It was where all could come and worship God. How well do you think Gentiles were able to worship God in the midst of that? I would say not very well. So if you're following, the temple had completely lost its primary purpose. This is why Jesus is angry. This is why he quotes from Isaiah 56. Let's look at the whole passage that he quotes from. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant. Pause. That's any Gentile who has just decided, right, like I'm going to worship the Lord of, of the Jewish people. Okay? He invites them to do that. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Unfortunately, his house, his invitation to the Gentiles had become a den of robbers, he says. That's a quote from Jeremiah 7. Now, I just want to pause just a little cool side note here because we're all Gentiles and I think we'd appreciate this. Many of the Jews in Jesus' time believed that when the Messiah would come, he would actually purge Jerusalem from foreigners and Gentiles, that he would create finally this perfect Jewish nation. But Jesus' actions here show us he came to do the complete opposite. If you're following on your notes, Jesus doesn't clear the temple of Gentiles, but for them. Worship of God, of Yahweh, is not intended to be exclusive. It is for All nations. Praise God. That is what he did. Indeed, this is still Jesus' dream for his church today. Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22. Consequently, you, this is speaking of us Gentiles, are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become what? A holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Jesus says there's no more courts for Gentiles and women, and I am building a new people in myself, and all are welcome to come and be in my presence. As Jesus will say later in Mark 13, we'll get there later this fall, he said that temple that we've been talking about is going to be destroyed. And sure enough, in AD 70, the temple was destroyed. And then he says this curious word, I'm going to build a new temple in my body. In fact, this is one of the things that gets him most in trouble. This is the accusation they make in the Sanhedrin when he's about to be crucified, right? Here's what Jesus said in John 2, verse 19. Jesus answered him, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now we know today he's talking about his body, but back then even the disciples were like, what? You're not going to be able to build another temple in three days. The, the, the Jewish leaders, this is the verse they use against Jesus in the end. But he's not talking about the physical building. He's talking about his body, which is going to be destroyed on the cross where he will offer the perfect sacrifice, the very lamb of God, so that the temple can ultimately fulfill its ultimate purpose. All people can come and be in God's presence and worship him. 
including you and me. And that's why we read these incredible words in Mark 15, 38. This happened the moment Jesus dies on that cross. Can you read them out loud with me on your notes there? It says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Why? We now have full access to God. We're not the outsiders anymore. We're welcomed into God's house, the very holy of holies. In fact, this gets even crazier. I don't have time for this. But we're then told by Paul that the temple of the Holy Spirit now lives in any person who knows Jesus. We don't have to go to a place anymore to worship him. We bring him with us. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are bearing God's presence with you wherever you go. That is a mystery above mysteries. I talked about that when we did our series on Foley, right? About the body, the importance of the body. But we bring God's presence to people now. That brings a whole new idea to what it means to live the way of Jesus in this world. I got to finish up here, but if you're following, in Jesus, all people have full access to the presence of God. Every person now is invited to the Holy of Holies to enjoy his presence. Now, let's close the sandwich here, one more piece of bread, and then I'm going to link this story together and uh, do some application. How does this fit our lives today? Let's look at verse 19. When Jesus came, Jesus and his disciples, excuse me, when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now, interestingly, the choice of words there, from the roots. What does that suggest to you? It's dead. It's totally destroyed. This isn't just some sick tree that you can nurse back to health like I'm trying to do with one of my plants in my office right now, right? This tree is dead. It cannot be nursed back to health. Same with the temple and the hollow religion that is taking place there. So that's the sandwich, so to speak. What does it have to do with us today? Well, I've already talked about it. What Jesus is saying to us, and I'm talking to some of us in this room who are the most active Christians out there, he's asking us this question, is your life like that fig tree? You might make it look nice on the outside, but inside it's dead. Is our life like the temple, full of religious show and activities, full of busyness, doing all kinds of things for God, but on the inside, it's just full of hollow religion? Friends, to follow Jesus is not an external exercise. It's not a to-do list. I, I, I grew up believing that. It's a to-do list. It's a bunch of rules. And if I get all those rules right, then I will look good. Then I will change and Jesus will be pleased with me. And Jesus says, no, I hate that. I'm not into a religion of externals. That is not at all what I'm looking for. What I'm looking for is what's taking place in your heart. Are you truly rooted to me and bearing fruit as a result of this? I don't care how nice you look on the outside. You can fool other people. I mean, I can fool other people. But you can't fool me. And I will know what's happening in your life by the fruit that you're bearing from this. Do you know me personally is what he cares about. Have you come into the Holy of Holies and experienced my presence in a way that will transform you into a fruit-bearing follower? If you're following, again, real faith 
always involves bearing spiritual fruit. The problem with the fig tree, it was bearing no fruit. The problem with the temple is bearing no real fruit. In the same way today, Jesus could care less about how good our church looks on the outside. He could care less about how religious I am. He wants to know what's happening in the root of my life, in the heart of my life, because that's the only thing that is going to cause someone to grow. Jesus said it this way in John 15, familiar verses. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain, I'll prefer the word abide in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. What does it say after that? Apart from me, you can do nothing. We can do all kinds of religious stuff, but you can do nothing that will actually bear fruit for my glory. If you do not remain in me or abide in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers just like that fig tree. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. The expectation Jesus has, if you know him, is you're going to bear fruit. Just like the expectation I would have if I went to go turn on a water faucet, what would come out of it? Good, one of you are awake still. Water. Water is going to come out of a water faucet, and spiritual fruit is going to be born out of a person who is abiding in the vine that is Jesus Christ. If you're following to tie it back to our whole series, those who walk in the way of Jesus will bear fruit. Of course, this raises the question, well, fruit, what does that mean? What kind of fruit? What kind of things does Jesus expect to see out of my life if I'm abiding in him? Well, in the last part of this passage, he gives us a few examples of the kind of fruit we might bear. Obviously, this is not an exhaustive list. Some of you know every time I say the word fruit, what are you thinking about? The fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience. If you're anything like me, you know darn well you cannot manufacture those things on your own. In my flesh, I can't be more loving or patient, or more kind. It is only when I'm abiding in Christ that those things can begin to flow out of my life. But Jesus talks about three more kind of fruit of the Spirit, so to speak, starting in verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, and he's probably looking at the temple mount while he says this, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now read verse 25 out loud on your notes with me there. It says, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive your sins. And then verse 26, which you may not actually have in your Bible. There might be a little footnote uh, down there. They're not sure if this was original, but he says, if you do not forgive other their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. So in this passage, I see three ways that we can bear fruit when we're connected to Jesus. The first way is a deeper faith that does not doubt God's power to act. Jesus says faith is the opposite of doubting in one's heart. Faith is the opposite of fear. Faith is a choice to trust Jesus no matter the situation we may be facing. Now, this doesn't mean that asking questions is wrong or off limits. Jesus loved questions. He welcomed questions. The bigger idea is when we are facing a situation in our lives, a mountain-moving situation where we're like, apart from an act of God, I can't see a way out of this. 
Will we choose faith? Will we choose trusting that God can still act when things seem impossible to us? That's the kind of faith Jesus is talking about. Now, connected with that, you notice he talks about, if you're following, a life of prayer that expects that God will answer. Faith in that moment says, I believe that God can still act in this situation. And the way we show our faith is by praying. Lord, come, act. I'm desperate. Apart from you, I'm suffering right now. I'm in this trial right now. I don't know what's going on right now, but I'm going to pray believing that you still have the power to act. The mountain moving prayer, that's a hyperbole, right? Like it's a symbol. This is impossible for me. This is beyond my finite ability. And Jesus loves to get us at that point. I wish he didn't, but he does. Because that is where faith begins. That is where the rubber meets the road. Am I going to trust you enough to believe that you can act in this situation? Some of us as a staff, I got to keep this fairly general, uh, but we prayed for a mountain moving prayer probably about three months ago. I got to be honest, I probably had some doubt. And Jesus moved a mountain that I've never seen before. Hopefully we can share more about that at some point, but we got to this point where we were like, I have no power. We have no power to act. The doctors have no power to act anymore. Without you moving this mountain Nothing will happen, but he moved it. Have you been in situations in your life where you're like, I don't know where else to go except for prayer, prayer and faith, and then Jesus has moved that mountain for you. I hope you've experienced that at some point. Now, I want to come back. Obviously, you probably noticed that these words about prayer have been misused by many people in the church in what I would call the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel essentially basically takes this text and says, yeah, if you just have enough faith, God will grant you whatever your hearts desire, whatever you wish. You want that mansion? Just pray with faith. You want that new boat? All you got to do is pray with faith. No, 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 no. This is not a promise that God will give us everything we want. This is a promise that when you're truly rooted in Christ, when you are abiding in Christ, guess what's going to happen? Your prayers are going to look a lot more like what is going to bring God glory, not you glory. God is not some cosmic genie granting people wishes. No, prayer for those rooted in him will be this passionate pursuit to say your plans, your purposes come in my life. And Jesus is like, yeah, let's go. I want to do that. I want to answer that prayer. Rooted prayer always says these words, right, from the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to see your kingdom advance. I want to do what your will would want me to do in this situation because I want your glory, not glory for myself. I want your kingdom not to expand my kingdom. So if you ever hear somebody teaching that Jesus will give you whatever you want as a cosmic genie, walk away. Turn the TV off. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a false gospel. Third thing we see in this text, maybe the hardest of all, if you're following, is that if we're rooted to Christ, we will have a willingness to forgive others the way Jesus forgives us. This one goes to the roots. 
But if you're connected, abiding in the vine of Christ, we will learn how to forgive. Now, I'm going to be clear here. This doesn't mean we don't still have boundaries. People have misused this text as well. It simply means I'm going to let go of the bitterness and the anger that you caused me. I may not let you back in my life, but I'm going to give that to Jesus and forgive you. Because we have recognized, a true follower of Jesus always recognized that's exactly what he did for me. He went to the cross so that he could offer forgiveness for me. So how in turn can I not offer that same forgiveness to the people who have wronged me? Verse 26 goes so far as to say, right, if I can't do that, perhaps I've never truly experienced the grace that Jesus provided on the cross. I can pretend I'm gracious on the outside, but there may be deadness on the inside. Where do you find yourself in that? I I would also just say this as a side note about forgiveness. Jesus knows that the one thing that can block the sap, right? You're a vine, we're branches. He's the vine, we're the branches. Sap makes that stuff grow. Fruit bears from sap. He knows maybe the biggest thing that will keep us from bearing fruit is holding on to bitterness and unwillingness to forgive. It will just tighten up our lives to the point we just live in anger. We'll just live without freedom. Again, those are just three examples of some fruit. There's many more. But I'm going to close back, close this message by going back to the main question. And then we're going to have a time of reflection and prayer. Here's the question. What is the result of your faith right now? Sorry, that's not the one in the notes. I always save that for the end. What is the result of your faith in Christ right now? Are you a barren fig tree? Are you all show, all religion, all words, all appearance? Or are you bearing fruit for the glory and the kingdom? Are you like the temple? This, this, this is me a lot of times, right? My life is full of busyness and clutter and apathy, noise, distractions, where I'm just kind of going through the religious motions. Or are you truly experiencing the presence of God in your life? In this sort of holy of holies, each and every day. This passage, I love it, it gives us the opportunity to ask these questions, to examine ourselves. Do you know one of the things Paul actually tells us to do before we take communion, which we're going to do here in a few moments, but here's what he says in 1 Corinthians right before. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. And that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to have a time of reflection and prayer to prepare for communion. And I'm just going to ask you, say to the Holy Spirit, what do you want from me? What is keeping me from bearing the kind of fruit you would want me to bear? Am I an empty temple? Am I a dead tree? If so, show me how to make that right. If you're following on your notes, here's the question. What is keeping me from bearing spiritual fruit? That's it. This is your opportunity, your invitation, just to spend some time with Jesus. Jesus, is there anything in my life that's blocking me from bearing spiritual fruit? Maybe it's unforgiveness. Maybe it's a lack of faith. I don't know what it might be, but I'm pretty sure the Spirit is gracious enough to reveal those things to us because he wants us to live a life of joy and freedom and peace and fruit-bearing. Now, I'll just say, after this time of reflection, the team is going to lead us in a song that will prepare us for communion. This is a new song to us as a church, but it's directly about this passage. 
and it is just perfect. Sometimes songs are like, oh, that song's a great fit. This is like an incredible fit. And I will just say to you, when you're ready to sing, sing. And that's how we're going to prepare for communion. So let's bow our heads now. If you need to open your hands, just welcome the Spirit to examine you. Lord, I know for many people, perhaps doing this can lead to guilt trips, to fear, to trepidation. But you are the gardener who prunes, not to hurt us, but to help us grow and bear even more fruit. And so right now, we sit in your presence with open hands and say, Lord, come and examine me. What is keeping me? What might be keeping me? from bearing the kind of fruit that you want to bear in my life. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.